Welcome back to Unspoken, Unsung, the podcast that celebrates the accomplishments and lives of people you may pass on the street every day. I've known Nancy Capers for some 20 years. Thanks to this conversation, I know her better now. I already knew Nancy had a rich background as an actress, a screenwriter, and director. But I didn't know what motivated her leaving it all behind to become a psychotherapist whose specialties include PTSD, step-parenting, and cult recovery. I didn't know about her own traumatic experiences, including one in which she nearly lost her life in a terrorist attack on an airline flight that originated in Cairo, a flight Nancy boarded in Italy bound for Greece. You're going to want to hear this. Welcome to Unspoken Unsung's conversation with Nancy Capers. Nancy Capers, great to see you. Great to see you, Dan. Oh, thank you. So you were born in Minnesota. Yeah. Moved to L.A. in, like, middle school? Um, yeah, middle school. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Brother and a sister. Actually, sixth grade, but whatever. That's close. I have an right? older brother and an older sister. Uh-huh. So I was the youngest mascot <laughs> role in the family. Yeah. Right? Are you still close? Uh, Yes. Oh, that's good. Close with my sister, who's actually moved to La Jolla. Mm-hmm. My brother's in D.C. Um, yeah. So, 11 years old, you moved to L.A. Mm-hmm. What was that like for a kid of um, It felt sort of like heaven to me because Disneyland was there and um, celebrities. Mm-hmm. Right. So coming from, we had actually lived in Pennsylvania for a couple of years, three years. So we moved from Pennsylvania to L.A. to Glendale, um, up above Glendale. It's called La Crescenta. I know the area. Do you? Oh, I lived in Glendale. Oh. Yeah, when I was a little kid, my dad worked for the studios. And we lived on Pacific Avenue, right near Hoover High. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a yeah. neat place to live and a neat, neat place to grow uh, up. Yeah. So what was it like growing up for you there? Um, you know, it was um, a lot of fun and, um, uh, yeah, the move wasn't hard for me. I just sort of fit into the, the crowd and... Um, um, my mother was a pretty active alcoholic that time. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a person who would be drinking in the background, and she appeared completely sober most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was happening, and I think probably starting to increase. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dad was a salesman, um, worked for Zenith, 
for quite a while. Um, and he had, I, I think I now understand, intermittent explosive disorder. Hmm. So, so <laughs> it was a little tense at uh, home, just uh, a little bit tense. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was that part of it was was difficult, and and I kind of learned coping skills very young around uh-huh, those things. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So why did you move to the to the West Coast anyway? What was the you know, Dad had gotten another position with mm. Zenith as Western Division Manager, I think was his title. Oh, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. So, um, were you a good student in high school? I was a pretty good student. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I loved it. I loved school. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, I was on the student council, and was it from the time I was in sixth grade to uh, into college, actually Glendale College, I was a cheerleader. So, so I kept getting reelected. Okay, it wasn't me, you know, forcing my way in, but that was sort of my role, right? And so I think that was kind of about. Oh boy, I get to perform and uh-huh. right, I get to do skits at the assembly at the assemblies in school and um so so and I loved all of that. Yeah. 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 Were there any subjects in particular that you were drawn to? You know, I was I was certainly English, um and also economics. I did very well in economics. Mm, wow. So, um but yeah, English, anything that had to do with reading history. I also loved history. I thought about becoming an English uh, history teacher. Yeah. So. so it was right around the time high school ended that a tragic event happened in your life. Yes. Um, it was actually um, my first semester. Um, I was going to be doing some classes at Glendale College and then go to to University of Santa Barbara at the end of the semester. So it was all sort of mapped out. And then um, my father committed suicide. Oh my! Um, with a gun rifle shot to the head. So um, in the family home too. In the in our pool room, which is where we always had. Dances, you know, out yeah. by the pool, right? Mm. So that was sort of the fun place where we'd listen to records and. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it was um, shocking, for sure. Um, my mother had tried to commit suicide. My sister said she tried three times before my father committed suicide. Mm. So. Uh, I think they had a kind of very dysfunctional, um, loving, passionate, scared of. Uh, I think Dad may have had a couple of affairs. Um, so, you know, they'd have these horrible arguments, and um, you'd have to sort of get between mom and dad so dad wouldn't hit mom Mm -hmm. Um, and then they'd be kind of madly in love for a few days and then something else would happen Wow! Um, 
So, yeah. So, and if at that time she was still pretty much a more or less functional alcoholic, yeah. where did you find support? You know, I was actually quite devoted to my mother, and I, and I think she was devoted to me as much as she could have been. Um, so I always felt that she was there for me. So mm-hmm. she'd cook breakfast every morning. She'd make my lunch. Um, uh, she was very um, engaged in whatever I was doing, and if I was doing a dance for you know the Friday assembly that week, she would love to see it and kind of be mm. a part of it in that way. And then um, you know she'd start drinking at five o'clock every night and have a few scotches and. Um, and then that, over the years, just increased to where she'd start drinking at, you know, 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm, I'm not sure how aware of it I was, right? Maybe like, like with something as traumatic as a suicide, especially a suicide done in the way it was done and where it was done. Yeah. That would seem like it would, it, would, mm-hmm. it could make you just want to go numb, um, I think it certainly did that, yeah. and and there was a part because Dad was so difficult, and I'm, I think it's I think Dad was probably bipolar but undiagnosed. Mm-hmm. Um, Mom was clinically depressed, um, but also had a fantastic sense of humor. They both had great humor. Um, so, yeah. So that's where you got yours. <laughs> you, you. It is. It is. Oh, it you is. have a wonderful sense of humor. Yeah. Well, and I think part of that was a, it's a survival mechanism. Uh-huh. You know, and when Dad died, I, I came, I'd spent the night at my friend's house and another cheerleader. And Mom called at 7.30 in the morning and said, you have to come home right now. And that's not something Mom would ever do, right? She's fairly laissez-faire because she was... Drunk most of the time. Yeah. But um, so when I came home and, and my brother and sister were there and his wife and they told me what had happened, my first response was, well, I have to go to the game tonight. I have to cheerlead mm. the game tonight. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm going to get my things and I'm going to go back over to my friend Terry's house because we're going to go to the game together. Yeah. Right, and so, um, yeah. It, it well, how do you absorb something like that? Took a while to understand yeah, what, what that meant, and because yeah. Dad was difficult, there was a part of me that was kind of relieved because I thought, oh, okay, this is good. Mom and Dad won't be arguing anymore. Wow, wow. And then, um, so I pulled in when the coroner was leaving with the body. Um, and so after I was told, you're, you're not, probably not going to go to the game tonight, probably not a good idea, um, my brother and I went out to the pool room and cleaned up the, the blood and the skin and all the stuff that the coroner's office didn't, didn't really get, mm-hmm. um, which I understand. It's a horrible thing to have to, horrible job to have. Did that derail the future plan for you? You were going to go yeah. to... Oh, definitely. Uh-huh. So what happened in those years yeah. and the years that followed? Um, so um, I stayed home with Mom 
um, my sister and my brother went back to where they they were. Um, so I didn't go away to college because mom was yes right yeah falling apart trying to cope. Um, um, and she did quit drinking for a couple of years, mm-hmm. but then started again later. Um, so I was kind of, you know, I remember being in classes and not really there, and yeah. right going on field trips and not really there. Continued being a cheerleader at the at the, <laughs> <laughs> the games. Yeah. Um, well, you had to maintain some level of normalcy. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I think that kind of kept me sane on some level. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, cut to a year later, um, I'm still at home, going to school at Glendale. Um, met a guy, fell in love, wonderful guy named Dave Locke. Um, Fell in love. We got married. Big, big wedding. 450 people. The whole mm-hmm. deal, right? At Glendale Presbyterian Church. Um, so then, um, then a few months later, Dave and I had a friend who was in Scientology. His name was Stan Phillips. Very good friend. And he said, you guys, you got to come to this meeting. You could just come to a lecture. It's really wonderful. And we were both kind of, yeah, not really interested. No, not really. So we ended up going to a lecture in Glendale at the Mm -hmm. Glendale franchise that was given by a guy who was a Caltech mathematics professor. Really bright guy. Mm -hmm. Great lecture. And so it was about Scientology. And um, the lecture was very cool. It made sense. He was describing kind of this early information that you get that's um, useful. So afterwards, um, the staff there sort of glommed on to Dave and I. Um, and I think because we were, we were cute and fairly bright and I was approval-seeking, Right, mm-hmm. so kind yeah. of whoever would show would show up. I'd yeah, um, and they just said, you know, you guys are you're, you guys are awesome, and we really want you to learn about this thing because you can use it here and you can use it there and blah blah. blah. And so we kind of got seduced, and um, we ended up taking a initial communications class, which was twenty five dollars. It was it was fun and it was interesting mm-hmm. and some of it was very useful um, and then probably three months later we ended up quitting our jobs um, and joining staff wow yeah so did that kind of begin to signal changes in the relationship in the marriage Yes, um, and I, I think what that was about was I was too young to have been married. Mm-hmm. Um, I How was, old? I was 19, uh-huh. and I was coming off this familial trauma, Yes. right? And so I was sort of lost, and so 
if it would have been the Mormons who approached me, I probably would have become warm. I mean, mm. I think I was just kind of raw, raw. Yeah. And this showed, uh, gave me a place that had some kind of structure and rules. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what happened there was, so in Scientology, you kind of, it's a hierarchical system. And you're supposed to go through these kinds of levels of awareness. So um, if, if you're down here, if you're in kindergarten and the epitome is having a PhD, right. in that system, you're going to be kind of attracted to people who are in these upper levels, which are called OT levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so I things in our marriage were, were 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 normal things were happening that had to do with kind of individuation and how to be in a relationship. Um, and so I found myself kind of moving back from the marriage and being attracted to these people who are OTs. Right. And so um, Dave and I started arguing. Um, We didn't really put it together that Scientology was causing this. Mm -hmm. We thought it was just, oh, we're probably not well-suited to one another. Um, Scientology also has this process in a relationship. If you're having difficulty in your relationship, um, what it means is you've, you've done things to the relationship or to your spouse, you've, you've, you've transgressed somehow, and you need to get those off, and you need to talk about those with your partner mm-hmm. in a Scientology context. And he taught me a couple of things that were not, um, <laughs> yeah, not what it had to do with sleeping with, with someone else. And I just went, oh my God. and. You know, sort of said, okay, thank you for telling me that. And in my mind, I was kind of hurt, upset, didn't know how to handle it. Sure. So the way I handled it was to become attracted to this other guy who was an OT, who was a wonderful guy, lots of fun, very smart. And so I left my marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really bad. Really <laughs> bad. Shouldn't ha- he was a wonderful guy, didn't deserve kind of that level of pain. But that's what happened. Yeah. So then I was even an, I was another step further into Scientology. Mm-hmm. So I, I noticed um, in reading about your, your uh, entry into acting. By the way, how did you get into acting? I took a class. Had a friend whose name was Bobby Lyons, um, who's a Scientologist who was teaching classes. Um, oh, so in the meantime, I, I get I get married again. I have a son. Mm-hmm. Um, I a friend of ours, Bobby Lyons, is teaching these acting classes. I knew Bobby from Scientology, and um, I I was chosen in that period. Um, 
for a hidden camera commercial for a diaper diaper company. <laughs> right? Just out of nowhere uh-huh. because they knew my pediatrician and Paul <laughs> knew people and they got a hold of him because he was kind of a Hollywood pediatrician um, who was Hedge's son's pediatrician, by the way. So Hedge and I are also connected through him, which neither of us knew. Hedges we'll get into in a bit, but just We're so the listener to. knows, the current yeah. husband Hedges, yes. Yes, 20, 20, 25 years almost. Oh, that's... Um, so anyway, so as a young woman. So I did this commercial. After that, Bobby says to me, well, look, you know, was it fun doing the commercial? And I said, yeah. And he said, just come and look at the class. Just see if you're into it, because I think you'd really like it, and I think you'd be good at it. So I kind of thought, oh, fine. You know, I didn't, I didn't really know anything about what I was doing, but mm-hmm. it was... So I met a bunch of wonderful people. I met Lorraine, um, and we became fast friends. Um, so that was another place where I unexpectedly bloomed um, and took it very, very seriously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But my, I felt like my soul expanded, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. it still sounds like a progression. You mentioned that even cheerleading had a kind of an aspect of show. Yeah, yeah, and so performing. It sounds kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I don't have any narcissistic needs that were met, okay? <laughs> Let's take that off the table. <laughs> so then you, what was your next gig? So for two years, I no. Oh, my next gig was there's an actor who's a Scientologist who I knew, whose name was Jeffrey Lewis. His daughter is is Juliet Lewis, who a lot of people might yeah, know yeah. about, right? But at the time, she was I don't know five or six, I think. So one day, Jeffrey walked into our kitchen, um, and he said. So, do you want to be in a movie? And I said, I, I hadn't started acting classes yet. This was right after doing the oh, really? the, the hidden camera uh-huh. commercial. Yeah. Um, but Jeff and Bobby knew each other, so there was probably some link. I don't know. Anyway, so Bob's so so Jeffrey said, okay, well, can you go in like you know ten minutes because I'm going to to meet with the, this guy Floyd Mutrix, who's the director. Um, who directed a movie called Aloha, Bobby, and Rose, which was my first film experience. But anyway, so so I'm saying to Jeff, I don't know how to audition. I don't know anything about that. And he said, don't worry about it. I'll tell you how on the ride down. <laughs> oh, my God. So he had some sides, right, for this role. Uh, oh, they were looking for an unknown for the lead female in, uh-huh. the, in the film. And um, those were the sides he gave me. So it was like, a lead role in a film, and I've never acted. So uh, I went in. I met Floyd and the direct, the producer who was there, and uh, and I did the reading. And at the end of the reading, I looked at Floyd and I said, "That was so bad. I'm so sorry." <laughs> he thought that was hilarious because he hadn't seen somebody do that. I said, do you want me to do it again differently? He said, no, no, I don't, I don't think so. I said, I know. Agreement. I have no idea what I'm doing. He said, but here's the thing. I have another role uh-huh. for you, um, which is a waitress, and it's got 12 lines, and I think you'd be great at that, and how would you like to do that? And I said, okay. 
He said, um, great, okay, well, I'll see you on whenever the day of shooting was. I, I, and I walked out and had the role. Really? So it was sort of amazing and terrifying. And um, now, what else was going on in the background was, so Jeffrey and Bobby, these people are Scientologists. Mm-hmm. They want the director, Floyd Mutrix, to become a Scientologist. At that point, I'm a, I'm a highly trained um, uh, auditor in Scientology, like a counselor in Scientology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think some of that thinking was, well, we'll let Nancy be on set all the time so that uh-huh. Floyd won't go back on drugs because he'd had a a significant drug history, and she can answer all of his questions about Scientology. So I think that was some of it as well. Mm, wow. Yeah. So you never know. Kind of one of the hidden little secrets of Hollywood, huh? There you go. Yeah. yeah. So, and then he did another film that I was in. Um, so you did that film, and that was before you did acting classes. Yeah. Then you did acting classes. Yeah. Did you then get an agent and d- oh, dedicate yeah. yourself to it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, my deal was I I had no confidence. And so um, I did acting classes for two years before I went out on my first audition, um, which was way too long. But I I really wanted to feel like I knew what I was doing. And so, so that's what I did. So, yeah, so then I went through the process of, yeah, getting an agent and getting a manager and all the things you have to do. Um, going to auditions, being terrified, doing the audition anyway, kind of learning how to do auditions and not be terrified. Mm. Um, so that's a whole thing in itself. I bet, I bet. Matter of fact, it kind of cracked me up just then when you said it was terrible. I, I, <laughs> I tried to imagine any actress saying that to the people she's auditioning with. I didn't, you know, I didn't know not to. I didn't know enough not to say that. Yeah, well, right? you were pure. That's that's. Diff- I was. I was yeah. pure of spirit. So you had some roles in notable movies, TV yeah. shows. So you were in Pretty Woman. Yeah. Dynasty on TV. Yeah. Lois and Clark, The yeah. New Adventures of Superman. Yeah. Archie's Place. Those are some that I know. Yeah. Um, you... So obviously now you've got a resume in acting, and you moved into writing then, right? Yeah. So at some point, you see so many, as an actor, you have access to so many scripts um, that you start to think, you know, I might be able to kind of be able, I might be able to do this. So um, I took Sid Field's writing classes, who was the big screenwriting teacher in those days. Um uh, I did a weekend thing. Um, I came back, and I, I, Lorraine and I sat down and decided we're going to write a script. So I sort of taught her what I'd learned, mm-hmm. and uh, we wrote a script um, that was a couple of people liked it a great deal. Nothing happened with it, but so I that yes. So I started started on that road, um, and. So by the time I'd left uh, the industry, I'd, I'd co-written a script um, that was bought by Paramount Studios mm-hmm. um, that was optioned for two years. So that was very exciting, and having you know 
having meetings and paramount uh-huh. offices and all that. You and know. the pitch. Yeah, <laughs> it's well. We didn't even we uh, yeah we didn't have to pitch it. We had an in, so uh-huh. um, so that was amazing and wonderful and exciting and um, and then my ex husband and I, my former husband and I wrote. Another, uh, I worked on another script with him, uh-huh. which was an action adventure film um, that was made. So that was produced, um, and that was a low budget indie film that was um, a lot of fun to work with, and not a not a very good film. Mm-hmm. But I also learned a lot about writing, and um, yeah, yeah. So you were branching out all over the place because you got into theater too, did you not? Yes. Yeah, I got into. I joined a theater company, um, and then joined another theater company, and became artistic director of that theater company. Um, yeah. So it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. It was all. It was all. Wonderful. So when you're doing all these, when you're doing theater, you still have the option mm-hmm. to do TV and movies. Oh, sure, because and everybody knows. So all the doors are still open. Oh, yeah. Well, within, you know, you, everyone knows you might get an audition and be hired for a TV show in three weeks, but the odds are against you. So, mm-hmm. right? So everybody so, kind of knows that that's a possibility. Yeah. So they're understudies. And, and acting and writing. Theater, were you acting primarily? I was um, acting, and I started directing as well. Wow. Yeah. How did you get that? That that seems kind of a difficult thing. It is. Yeah. You know, Dan, I think it's it's just like anything, right? If if you've kind of worked in one sphere, you tend Mm -hmm. to get interested in this other thing over here. You've seen many people do it, some well and some not so good. And so you sort of start developing your own sensibility around it. Hmm. Well, obviously, you have, a, you have an aptitude, or it couldn't have gone that far even. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so. People have said I have, so I don't know. You know, you never know, because there's always, yeah. What, of, of those types of roles that you had in, in theater and acting in whatever in film what what did you enjoy the most oh gosh um i think theater because it's um so challenging right mm-hmm. to every night get on stage and yeah, yeah um and i i get you know you, you always hate it those few minutes before you go on stage, you want to throw up, you know, or I did anyway, every night. Um, but there are other aspects of it that are that are that kind of creativity happening in the moment mm-hmm. that might be different every night. Mm-hmm. And it's, so that's challenging and exciting. Did you have training in improv as well? Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that yeah, must yeah, have yeah. been fun. Oh, improv is fantastic. Yeah. The, the best, yeah. So... After all this... But let me tell you one yes. other thing. Another thing that's really amazing is working on a film set. Mm. Um, and certainly Pretty Woman is sort of the epitome of that, you know. And you're getting to hang around with incredibly wonderful, talented people. Mm. Interesting, interesting people. What? So. what uh, you had a role as sister to the Julia character? Is that what your role was? 
No, I was the sister of another woman. Oh, okay. Who was there? Who was Kathy Lee Crosby's sister, <laughs> Lucinda Crosby? We were the Olsen sisters. That's what Gary called us, the Olsen sisters. Um, but one thing that's interesting about that, so this sort of ended up as a six-second screen time mm-hmm. scene. So in the middle, it was a very, very long scene, and so. You sort of do that, you do that, and then you winnow it down and you cut it. You cut on set, right? You're making all the – Gary is making all these changes. Um, so that that whole thing is sort of thrilling. It's like, you know, it's that combination of this is the best thing I've ever done and, oh, my God, I'm terrified. The combination of those things makes it just super exciting. So then some of these people ended up being essentially coaches to you. Gary Marshall was the director? So Gary I'd known because I was in relationship with a man who, for a few years, who was Gary Marshall's assistant director mm-hmm. on Happy Days. And so Jules would go to Gary's house every Saturday and play basketball. And so it's this group of guys who've been friends with Gary's and worked with Gary for many years who are part of this sort of cabal, you know, mm-hmm. of guys who would go over to his house on Saturdays and play basketball. And so I also got to know Gary kind of off the set as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's happened to me in a couple of different circumstances where I just sort of happened to meet somebody because I was with this person and they knew that person. Right. Mm. Um so I I got to know a number of movers and shakers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was fun. I bet. I bet. Fun and eye-opening. Heady times. Yeah. But no Harvey Weinstein, thank God. <laughs> thank God. It's not too late, though. It's never too late. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't go there. I, I had a comeback, I, I and you. I thought, I, I'm, not, I'm not in the comedy routine, so... But... Um, so you can't it, offend me, Dan. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't have. It just would have been a clunker. I know. Oh I golly! <laughs> so you ended up changing direction completely after all this. Yes. So, so midstream. So before I did Pretty Woman and other TV shows and things, I I I got it. I had I'd been married for thirteen years. Um. And um, we, um, I wanted out, <laughs> so um, so there was substance abuse and other things right. that were going on, and um, so um, that relationship ended, and I started another relationship with this other person who was Gary's assistant director. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then you got into. Back into school, yes, and completely changed. So let me go forward. So I, as I as I got this divorce, I started realizing, you know, I love acting and I love that I love this world, and yet I don't want to go in one more peanut butter uh, commercial audition. Yeah. I, I can't. I I can't do it anymore. Um, so I decided to go back to school and kind of see how it felt to me, and so. Um, I started getting kind of more and more interested in psychology, yeah, and thought this might be something that I I want to do seriously. Um, 
I'd written a paper that had gotten some, an academic paper that had gotten some um, some accolades and mm-hmm. uh, went and did a couple of presentations on that paper. And so I was getting pretty wonderful feedback about um, using my mind. So I think that became a, a period for me where I, I, I realized that I, I actually had a very good mind and I could learn things and I could go over here and learn this and I could go into this subject and learn that and so that became again kind of another awakening and I had um, I'd left Scientology by that point yeah and and started to learn about that for myself and what that had been about Um, but I yeah I loved academia it still had to be a kind of a courageous thing I would imagine Doing commercials, and you were a spokesperson. You were the spokesperson for Jane Fonda, right? With right. her workout program. Workout wear, yeah. I would imagine those things were lucrative, Very. and they had residuals. Very, yeah. No, so, I still get residuals. Oh, well, that's great. <laughs> so, so, so leaving it behind maybe wasn't as scary a transition as if you just cut the cut the cord and and had to go out and f- figure out right. a way to make a living. Cold, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. So I still sort of had that going. Um, and I, I, I guess, and then, uh, so I ended up moving down to San Diego. Um, is that too far ahead? Have I jumped too far ahead? I don't think so. I think we'll just go wherever we go. Let's just let it, let it go. Let that period go. Well, it's kind of funny because, you know, I met you through your husband, Hedges. Yes. Now, how did you meet Hedges? So, um, in Scientology... I met a wonderful person named Ruth Ann Cohan. And Ruth and I just sort of clicked and had this, this wonderful relationship. Um, we, were, we became best friends and continued as best friends for many years. Um, so Ruth had, was living in Laurel Canyon at the time. Um, she said, why don't you come to my house in Laurel Canyon and I'm gonna take you over to meet my brother. Uh, Hedge and his wife Donna and whatever, and I said, "Oh, that'd be that'd be fun. That would be so much fun. How great!" <laughs> and at the time, I guess Hedges had done a film called "The Legend of Hillbilly John." I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to their house. I was walking around the house, and he was totally adorable. And I can remember walking by the bed and going, this is where he sleeps internally, <laughs> right? Only I immediately felt guilty for having that thought because he's my best friend's brother. And you don't that, – that's property you don't walk on, right? Yes, that was yeah. my – plus I was completely intimidated, you know, because he was an amazing musician. And Donna was beautiful, and I think they'd had Ethan by that time. So, um, and they just had this fabulous life, yeah. right? So I met him through his sister, and I was 22 when we first met. So over the years, I would, I would see him. Uh, he then got divorced, remarried, had children. I married somebody else. I had children. But I would, I would sometimes go to say their 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 mothers. 73rd birthday 
which was a dinner, big dinner, and it was wonderful, beautiful. And Hedge and I would end up gabbing in the corner to each other, right? But not do anything about it, right? So we were both aware that we really, really liked each other. Um, but, but those were lines that you don't cross. Um, we were we were far too moral, you know. So that was a surprise to me <laughs> that you know I could be. I'm kidding. Um, yeah. So there was a point in time when there was an actual first date, like a date. Yes. There's a story there, I think, isn't there? There is a story. So, so meanwhile, I'm becoming a psychotherapist. Okay, that's what's right. happening. Uh-huh. Their father was a transactional analyst, who, who I met Carl Rogers. He spoke at the La Jolla Institute. Carl mm-hmm. Rogers is a very big. Um, I think Aaron Beck, um, the rational mode of therapy. So anyway, so I'd been seeing these people talk about psychology, right? And, and the way they do it, right? Okay, so that was kind of early for me, and I bring it up only because, so I then ended up going into psychology and becoming a therapist. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, okay, years later, he's getting a divorce, I'm divorced, we end up, uh, oh no, Ruth calls me one afternoon and says, and this is in LA, I'm still in LA. Right. And said, oh, you know, I think my brother's really lonely. He's he's up in L.A. in Benedict Canyon, and I don't know, would you mind having lunch with him? And I said, okay, sure. Yeah, that'll be fine. You know, I'm also still seeing somebody else. So uh, so the, so I guess I, I call him. We say, yeah, Thursday at 12 o'clock. Oh, great, that'll be fine. We decide, we decide we're going to see each other. I wake up that morning, it's pouring, pouring, pouring. The canyons are flooding. It's not a good day to go out in. And I, I had a sore throat, I had a very bad sore throat. So I called his sister and I said, um, you know, I'm gonna call Hedge, I'm gonna cancel because weather is crazy and I'm, I don't, and I have a sore throat and, and uh, but I said, I will reschedule and it'll be okay. And I said, you know, the other thing is, I think it might be kind of dangerous if we, have dinner together. <laughs> she said, what? Dangerous? What? And I said, well, you know, he's pretty wonderful. And, da, da, da. and she said, no, no, it'll be fine. Just go. You'll love it. He'll love it. It'll be fine. It'll be good for him. So, um, yeah, so we go to a, a restaurant called Shane's in Benedict Canyon in Beverly Glen, which is this kind of hip, you know, L.A. place. And... Um, and I get dressed, you know, and I put on four different tops because nothing's working. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm just sort of out of my mind mm-hmm. with um, anticipation. And um, and how am I going to hide that, right? Okay, so I get there early. Um, I pull up, and in the, in the uh, parking lot, uh, I see... Warren Beatty is standing not far away by his car, right. 
and I'm getting out of my car, and I close it, and I'm walking, and I look up, and he goes, hi. And I just kind of, you know, kept walking and going, <laughs> going to the restaurant. So that was kind of nice to be at least noticed. I don't know if he – whatever. So I get to the restaurant. Uh, I get seated. I'm sitting, and I'm waiting, and it's, you know, five minutes after, and, you know, it's, oh, my God, he's probably going to be late. <laughs> so that starts happening, the, the ridiculous psychological obstacles we put in our way, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, then he arrives, and he's – Beautiful, and and he's wearing this beautiful, you know, yellow cashmere sweater, and he's a t- got a tan, and I'm sitting here kind of feeling kind of, I don't know what I'm feeling. And so what I did was I looked up at him and I said, okay, you just want to, you just want to fornicate? You just want to fornicate and get it over with? <laughs> and, and, and I have this improv background, right? And actors would respond to that in some way that's funny. But he sort of looks at me and he says, yes, I do. But no, we're not going to get anything over with. I think we should blah, 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 something like, let's try a relationship. Uh, but he's very positive about it. So, so we ended up, we were in this restaurant where there's kind of a screened-in porch, mm-hmm. right? So the restaurant outside, there's a screened-in porch where we are with a few tables. So we, music comes on and we start dancing with each other. There is no dance floor. But we're sort of moved to do that. We order four rest, four desserts, ate none of them, you know, had like two bites from uh-huh. um, And it was just unbelievably romantic. So by the end of the evening, and people are kind of smiling at us, and you know that vibe when you're getting, the in-loveness yes, thing, and yes. people are loving it, and oh, they want to be a part of it. So um, by the end, so by like, whatever, 10, 30, or 11, the owner of the restaurant comes out of the door to the inside room, right? He's locking up, and he said, you know, I can see something's happening here. I don't think you two should be, uh, should have to leave yet. And so uh, if you just lock up the screen door when wow. you leave, it was, it was, the, it was the most, uh, it was very cinematic, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, very romantic, very wonderful. Yeah. And so um, I – so that's kind of what happened. And then we ended up getting together and moving in with each other. And, um, yeah, it's very wonderful. Well, I remember he was – his house in Benedict Canyon, mm-hmm. he was getting to ready to – do a refurb or something on it. That's the stuff he does to every house. Yeah. Yeah. And did he not, like, engineer to have you come over there and then he had graffiti all over the walls? He had on the drywall everywhere, it said, I love you, Luna. Luna was some sort of – it was actually a joke between Lorraine and I about some film we had seen where the whims is, oh, Luna. And so so that was sort of a part of the hilarity. Yeah. Yeah, And I said, I love you. And there are hearts. And 
um, and the, and the kids he had uh, two son two children who were with him, um, who were I think six and six and ten I think something mm-hmm. like that. Sarah um, and but they were their mothers, Jesse and Sarah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so he. Okay, so the first night we go back to his house in Benedict Canyon. I see all this writing on the walls, and it's just its so wonderful. You know, it's melting. You're melting. And then he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. we uh, I have to uh, – he had a futon in front of the very open, very big fireplace, like a ha- big hearth, right? Uh-huh. And, he, and he'd put candles around it, and he lit the candles. He said, so here's what's happening. Um, something about my birthday. Oh, it was his birthday. So he said, um, I've been told by my astrologer friend, which she's not really into, but what the hell. She said, oh, it's the something, the new birth, the new solstice, something. It was special. It's a special birthday for him. So here's what, here's what we should do. It's going to be a rebirth for me. And so I think if you if you you sit down here and then he pantomimed kind of being birthed between my legs. Oh wow. That was it was hilarious, completely non-threatening and kind of wonderful in some weird way, right? Where it was just so fun and I don't know, something about it was so right when it comes to how he and I interact with yeah. one another. Um, well, you two could be a comedy duo for sure. We we've spent a lot of we spent a lot of time in there as it is. So, um, yeah. So wonderful life going on. Mm-hmm. You end up getting married. Mm-hmm. Tragedy strikes again. Yes. So Hedges' son Jesse. Um, had gone to and and Jesse he lived in both homes right his mom was in LA we were in we were in La Jolla at this point um yeah so Jesse went up to Santa Monica to a party with a couple of friends um and there was um some drugs were involved and you know Jesse died <clears throat> by running off a cliff because he thought he was running into the ocean because the cliff was at the top of the ocean in Santa oh, Monica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and that was just, I mean, it's, yeah, it, it's really indescribable. And um, as the stepmother... The pain was so intense that I, I honestly, I'm not sure I can imagine what it was like for Hedges and Deborah. Yes. Um, I, I, yeah. There's, there's just nothing. There's nothing that helps, you know. Yeah. There's a kind of um, grief that I, I don't think. Anything else is like it. Well, it seems that so many experiences seem to have have impacted what you do as a therapist. Because mm-hmm. I noticed on your resume, you do um, cult recovery. I do. 
and you do you treat PTSD. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I saw somewhere in your resume that you had uh, you've taken coursework in step parenting. Oh yeah, lots of work in step parenting. So it sounds like you've got a rich you know combination yeah. of both experience and education, and you can put that all to use with your clients. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's a some of that is a kind of a reward of seeing an older therapist, right? That there are many, many people in the practice who um, have had difficult experiences and so they've had to work their way out of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. We can make them useful in some form anyway. There was another experience that comes to mind, which was when I was, in 1986, I was flying to Greece to meet my then-husband on a film he was making there. And so I was flying from Rome to Athens. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a terrorist bomb on that flight that had been placed there by, it turned out, a Lebanese woman. Um, And it exploded midair. So it happened in row 10. I was in row 25. Um, My experience of that was that I felt a jolt. And um, I was standing talking to the stewardess, actually, the flight attendant, to get some plastic wings for my son, which I would get for him whenever I I had to travel. And... um, there was this explosion, and I thought it was the microwave. Oh. And I'm thrown to my feet, um, thrown to the floor, rather, and I sort of crawl back to my seat and sit down and get belted in. Meanwhile, the oxygen bags are coming out wow. of the ceiling. The air is... Um, uh, there's just there's chaos, right? And the air, you, you smell gunpowder, sure. and there's insulation, and there's all kinds of crap blowing around in the plane. Uh, there were two people who, there were two people who tried to get out of the um, exits because they dissociated. In flight. In flight, they oh didn't. My. So they're in shock, right? They don't know what's happening. There are babies crying. There are children bleeding. There are. There was a whole family who came and got behind me because the people who were there went to go do something. So um, it was chaos, and the the flight attendants were scabs. So TWA flight attendants had got out on strike. Wow. So so these women and a guy who were incredible, by the way, they were fantastic. um, we're kind of dealing with this, and um, yeah, and so my my experience was that I sort of went to God, right, which I think we all go to in this moment of life right, or death. Right. Pretty sure I'm going to die, and um, you know, try to connect with God, and I just get, it's just black. <laughs> just, there's nothing. <laughs> there's nothing there. Um, I, I'm unable to really connect with anything, so I decide, okay, I'll put the oxygen mask on. Meanwhile, people are praying in all different languages, um, and the, the plane becomes a paper airplane. So it's going back and forth like this. Um, 
the pilot comes on the the PA and in his very midwestern voice says um yeah it, <laughs> it looks like we had a window blow and so we'll be we'll be I'll be uh we'll be landing at the Athens airport in about 10 minutes and the PA goes off <laughs> we're like what now, at that point, I thought – I didn't know it was mom. So at that point, I thought, oh, it was a window that blew. Oh, my God. Which is not less uh, – not less of a catastrophe, really. But um, – so it wasn't until I – so the plane landed. There are, you know, emergency vehicles yeah. on, the, on the tarmac. There are red lights. There's all this – crap is going on they they i'm i get off the plane I, i'm walking next to a guy about i don't know 30s and he said oh yeah a window blew and i said what do you mean he said that's terrorism and i thought how oh, what wow so i was shocked and um and he was right yeah what year was that again? That was in 86. Wow. It's TWA Flight 840. Wow. There's a bunch bunch of stuff on it, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So obviously it would have been a whole different deal had the fuselage ruptured, really. I mean. Oh, sure. I mean, you get these, you, you see in movies anyway, if a window blows, everybody gets sucked through it regardless how big they are. There were four people sucked Re- out of the plane. Really? Yeah. One was an American man. Um, there was a grandmother. Her oh daughter and her infant oh. child. So for me, for a long time, the I had nightmares about hearing a baby cry, oh, and I could bad. never find the baby. Oh. <clears throat> so that was kind of yeah, yeah. Wow. And the, and from there, by the way, I had to go to. We had to fly to London, then we had to fly to South Africa, where we were doing another film. In that film, I played a woman whose child, whose son, is kidnapped by terrorists. Oh, oh no. <laughs> it's an action film called Hostage, uh, which my then-husband Wingshauser and I were, were in, which we did. So I had to shoot for six weeks in the middle of a fuselage. Uh-huh. Um, so that was, you know, I don't know. For me, it was just, okay, okay, this is what you got to do. This is work. Buckle down, do your work. Um, but I was lost on no one. You know, what I, what, I, what I brought to the project in terms of information based on what I'd experienced. So the director and I had long talks about... This could happen, or this could happen, and right. And he was so respectful. He he so didn't oh, want to ask me questions, but it was it was clear it would be useful. So, and instruction is very parallel to what people in Vietnam, you know, all the all the the factors that induce PTSD. Mm. You know, they still have to function. Yeah, all these terrible things are happening, but they have yeah. to carry on. Right. So they cope. And then did it come up later? Did, that sounds like you had to have some level of PTSD after that. Oh, for sure. Oh, no, no. I ended up sitting on the kitchen floor in rubber gloves because I was, I, was, I was loading the dishwasher, 
And at one point, and everything was fine, right? And the next thing I knew, I was sitting on the ground, sobbing. And um, so I started to have symptoms. Yes, mm. started to have symptoms. Um, insomnia, you know, the yeah. usual, the usual stuff. Terrible insomnia and um, anxiety and panic attacks. And, yeah. Yeah. So are you still actively... Um, working in psychotherapy? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. I have a I have a small practice, um, so I work a couple of days a week, which I I love, which I enjoy. Yeah. But in the middle of all this, yes, another project comes up. This this talented what? man of yours and you. Oh, that did something very, very great. I was fortunate enough to get to see it. Tell oh, us about the geese and I. So, so I'd had my screenwriting experiences. Hedges had his songwriting experience in L.A., um, which was significant. And so we sort of just started talking about um, doing some kind of a musical. Um, and I knew nothing about writing music, so the music was all him. Um, and then we sort of, and it was really, it, it kind of took place over seven years. The creation of the project? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So either we didn't have time to work on it or we'd put it away for a few months and then we'd come back and, um, and we fought a lot. So that was so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was a new era for us in our relationship, you know? Um, and we had to learn how to do that constructively, yeah. um, which we finally learned how to do that, um, sort of. So, and then I, I directed the project, right? So anyway, we wrote this musical about aging called The Geese and Me, um, and we opened it in uh, downtown San Diego, um, and it ran for five weeks to, I think, all sold-out shows except maybe one. Um, it was a blast. It was, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh -huh. um, but it was wonderful being back again with actors and, right, in that, in that um, yeah, milieu. Well, I was fortunate enough to see it. It really was terrific. Oh, thank you. That was wonderful. Thanks. So does that kind of keep you, in a way, is that drawing you back to theater and art and music and um, TV and all? Not, not that much. So in mm -hmm. other words, if, if a friend was making a movie and they wanted me to do a part in it, I'd love to. Um, but I have no interest in auditioning or, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but again, if if there was a project, if there was a, a stage project that someone presented me with, I, I probably would love to do that. But um, yeah, I'm struck by how many highs and lows, almost sometimes concurrent, there are in your life's story. Mm. Um, I'm yeah. wondering how did you keep the balance in your life in all that? I think therapy helped a lot. I think 
kind of being able to keep tabs on what's going on internally has helped. Mm-hmm. Um, but honestly, Dan, I, I feel like I've been very lucky um, in that I've had those experiences. I've, I've been able to most of the time have coping skills. Um, and I don't always. I don't mm-hmm. always. Um, but I feel kind of lucky that I've I've survived, and yeah. um, and I have a good life, and I and I kind of, you know, bless every day that I I wake up. Yeah, you know, yeah. so I think that's possible. I think I think healing is possible for sure. Do you, looking forward, do you see any other new mountains to climb, or what do you see in your future? Well, I think the next big project is um, an, a, a, another a friend of mine who's a Jungian analyst. She and I are working on a book. So, um, and that's just kind of starting to take shape. Um, yeah, so I'm kind of figuring out what, how much I want to present. And so she's, um, yeah, we're, we're kind of in a position where... Um, we, we think it's going to get published. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's obviously some writing talent involved in it, and it sounds both experientially and educationally. They're, they're, they're just you alone. I don't know anything about her, but I'm looking forward to this. Well, we'll see. <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> okay. I'll let you know. So what's life like now? Um, it's pretty fancy-free, honestly. I I... See clients for a day or two. I um, kind of get up and decide what I'm going to do today. So I put the goals that I have. You always should put those aside. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just kind of do what you want to do all day. It's kind of my life. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but no, I'm at a place where I need to kind of have more structured time yeah, to yeah. work on the book. So I need to start doing that. Yeah. So if you were able to spend, say, an afternoon with high school Nancy, Mm -hmm. what would you want her to know? Don't be worried. It's going to be absolutely wonderful with some bumps. Relax. Enjoy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I want to thank Nancy for sharing this glimpse into her fascinating life story, her wit, even her romance and theatrical collaboration with Hedges Capers. And speaking of Hedges Capers, he'll be our next guest on Unspoken Unsung. So join us again next time on Unspoken Unsung. This episode, for a change, we're going to go along with one of the wonderful songs from Nancy and Hedges' musical. The Geese and Me was scripted and directed by Nancy Capers, Music by Hedges Capers. Here's O Sister from the Geese and Me.
Join us again next month for another episode of Unspoken Unsung. We also hope you'll subscribe to Unspoken Unsung at Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. If you like the show, be sure to give us a like and a review. Nothing helps spread the word more than your subscription and review, and both cost you absolutely nothing. Unspoken Unsung was recorded in the Converse Air Studio of Carlsbad, California. Additional recording and mixing was done at Brother Rock Projects, also in Carlsbad. Martin Danner and Ken Langen engineered the recording. Post-production engineer was Ken Langen. The show's host and producer is Dan Danner. Podcast theme music, Hope Not Hate, was written and performed by David Gwynn Jones for Zapsplat. Hedges Capers wrote and with his daughter Sarah performed a little longer. Hedges also wrote, Oh Sister. 
Petrus Capers owns all rights to those songs, and we thank him for allowing us to use them. 